Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Dorothy Chelichev, Andre Chelichev's widow on the show today. Very nice to have you here. Thank you. You were married to Andre Chelichev for about 25 years. Yes. And when did you first move to the Napa Valley? 1958. What was it like back then? It was a quiet, peaceful place where everybody knew everybody and certainly not like it is now. A little more hustle and bustle now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was... uh, a lot different with beautiful valley, of course. We came from on the Fresno area, but we got up here. It was really beautiful. Why did you decide to move to St. Helena? My first husband came up to open the grammar school there, Robert Louis Stevenson. It had been built for three years, but not in. And there was a new superintendent, and he wanted to bring somebody from the outside. So we had four children, and we moved to St. Helena. And what did you do for your own job? At that point, I started to work. I worked at the high school for a year, and then I went to work at Beaulieu Vineyard for 10 years. What year did you start there? 1958. Pretty cool vintage. (laughs) And uh, I I was a secretary. There was only one secretary there, and I had three bosses. And um, it was time when... Everybody worked because they liked their job, and they worked. It was a home-owned, or it was family-owned company. And uh, so it was uh, busy times. Harvest time meant seven days a week. And um, frost times meant quite a few nights fighting the frost with the wind machines and the smudge pots. We had some... Furious frosts in the mid-60s up here. They don't know what frost is now. And in that time, the winery crew was the one that went out at night. And and Andre brought in the wind machines. He brought in the smudge pots from the orchards in Southern California. And we had several stations, one ranch on one place and another place. Sixteen nights from 10 o'clock until 6 in the morning, we were all out. And my job was, he'd get the notice on, from the frost alarms. He called me. I was at home. I'd get up, make all the sandwiches, 
take my dog along with me, my little Volkswagen. I'd go all to all the stations and be sure they had coffee and stuff. It was something to see the valley when they lit those smudge pots. Lights all through the valley. Oh, yeah. When I, I went up one night up on the road that goes over to Sonoma, and there's a lookout up there one night when I was on my way back home. And all this smoke and eerie, and the lights, and the wind machines, as the wind turned them, you know, the, the different sound, it was really something. But there were 16 nights that year that we were out. So it was a busy time. And how many people worked at BV at that time? It was a pretty good-sized winery by the time I got there. Andre came in 1938, so um, it was pretty good-sized by that time. And what do you remember about the owners? Oh, Marquis and Madame de Pens, they were lovely people. They spent part of their time in San Francisco, part of the time up here, part of the time at their estate in Montbron, the chateau. And the Marquis was always nicely dressed in his country clothes when he came up here. And I remember one day I went into San Francisco to the office and he came in in his city clothes, and man, he was a handsome man. <laughs> but they were very good. Of course, Madame de Pens was the one that more or less, or I should say Madame La Marquise, but anyway, um, we always called her Madame de Pens. Um, she was the owner, and she had her definite things about how she wanted to run things, and, you know, my work that was keeping the records and weighing the trucks when they came in with the grapes and things like that. So I didn't have as much interaction with them. Andre, they were more or less family to Andre because it was Mr. Delatour who hired Andre. And of course, he arrived in the States with no English whatsoever. And of course, they were French, and there he had the French. He and his wife and son lived across the street from the winery, and that's in Rutherford. And then he told me that an, Dimitri, I think, was probably about eight when they came, the son. And uh, they used to walk into St. Helena to see the shows to learn the English. And in six months, he was publishing an article in English, so he picked it up. From the movies. Probably, and his wife did speak it. She'd been hospitalized in the States for a while before they came in, so she had the English. But uh, he said he knew hello and goodbye. And Andre had been hospitalized during the war in Russia. Yeah, he was in the war, and there was a whiteout of fog, and he got lost from his troops, and he crawled into a thicket and went to sleep. And the... Cossacks were going around picking up the dead, and they saw him, and they picked him up and threw him across the horse. They thought he was dead. And when they brought him back to wherever it was, threw him off, they saw that he was alive. So he spent five or six weeks, and he told me the nuns took care of him, and he had his legs in olive oil for that length of time, which to me was amazing because at 91 and two, when he was back at Beaulieu, he could outwalk the boys in the vineyard yet. Because he, he oversaw both the winery and the vineyard. He had all of it, the winery and the vineyard. 
that was the hardest thing after the winery was sold to Hubline. They took vineyard management away to somebody else, and that was really heartbreaking for him because he loved the vines. He was, if anybody did a damage to him with a truck or something, they paid for it. <laughs> but he was in charge of everything. He was made it a point to be there in the morning before the workers came. He had been to viticulture school in Europe. He went to the School of Agronomy in what's now called Brunn in the Czech Republic, which was a, a more or less a forestry school. And he went through there. He went in and he came over to the States on a Nansen passport. Friedrich Nansen was in the League of Nations at that time, and he decided that all these young people who had come out from the war and they had no records, no anything, if they were eligible, should go to school, they drew schools. And so he drew this one. He always wanted to be a doctor, but this happened to be, and my understanding is, and I could be wrong, but the schooling was given them, but they had to get themselves there and take care of it. And he did one year of preparatory school there in Czechoslovakia, and then four in this school. I made a trip there, um, my first trip to that area. I made several back where I knew he'd been, and I got to go to the school. A member of Andre's nephew's family lived back there, and so she came and took me on the, at a lunch tour, and we went up to the school. So that was quite a treat. Because he had been separated from his family. Yes, he, he came back with the family, but then went to school there. The, the family, I'm not sure if they were there all the time. I think they were in Budapest. And then they did move over further. I don't didn't have too much of that history. But they were white Russians. Yeah. And they had to leave Russia with the war. Well, his father was the chief justice of the Court of Appeals in Moscow. And he was declared an outlaw. And for quite a time, and I don't know how long, the father never was able to stay in one place at one time. And um, He thought he might be assassinated. Yeah. And then... A friend in Moscow that he had helped managed to get him false passports. And so the family left Russia on, on a train and went down, down as far as they could go on the train. And then they walked through. At that time, they were on, there was a German line there. And at that time, they had to walk through the woods and get through the German line and Andre's grandmother was Prussian, so in their family, one of the languages that they did was French and one was German, and they managed to make it through. And then they joined the white Russian army down there then. So after Andre had been in school, yeah. Mr. De La Tour went to Europe. Well, Andre, he did work in Tokai for a while, after school, about a year or so, he was married. And then they moved into France and studied at um, Agro there. And uh, that's where Delatour met him. And he'd worked for Moet and Chandon at some point. Part of the time in his training, he did work. And when they built 
up in St. Helena. He told them he was one of their employees, and they said, oh, don't believe it, but they went back and looked at the records and found it. And Mr. De La Tour met him in Paris. Yeah, Mr. De La Tour and Marquis. They both went and hired him, and then he came in 38, and then I think Mr. De La Tour died in 40, I think, 39 or 40. When did you first meet Andre? When I went to Beaulieu. So yeah. 58. Yeah, 58. What was yeah. he like at that time? Well, he was he was a little intimidating at that time. He was very energetic, and I, I, he was not my primary boss, but he was... I did all the other stuff and as if he'd been a boss. But uh, he was he was very nice. The thing he had he was raising a grandson who was the same age as one of my sons, and they were in school together. So it kind of got to be a friendship between families with the children. And uh, well, what can I say? <laughs> what was he like at the winery? He was very strict on cleanliness, very strict about his wine. I mean, they were, they were his children. And so he meant to be, he was liked by everybody, but they also knew that he meant business. What he told them, they did. <laughs> Where was BV being sold at that time? Was it mostly the people who came to the region or did they ship across the country? Oh, well, we shipped a lot. We shipped in bulk. When I came to the winery, there was a platform there, and the train came, and we used to ship in barrels by train across to New York and ship to another one in, um, I want to say Cleveland, but I'm not exactly sure. Could have been Chicago. And then later on, and just before they stopped the train, then we were shipping in case, but most of it was barrel shipping. And it was very hard because uh, they had to get them in just right so that the heating element in the front of the car was right. And then we lost some in a snowstorm. I remember going across the top of the States in the winter time. But that platform is no longer there. But it, Southern Pacific ran up the valley, clear up to St. Helena at that time and delivered things. And it was very interesting. <laughs> And the trucks used to come in from different parts of California? Yeah. Well, of course, we had the trucks from the vineyards here. And then, of course, our supply trucks came in, glass and all of that came in. But, uh, yeah, and, and the out, right outside of my office was a scale. So it was my job to weigh the grapes as they came in. And uh, in the harvest time, I was there and weighed the grapes and paid the vineyard workers and was it mostly Cabernet Sauvignon at that time, or was it something no, else? No, there were quite a few other ones. There were quite a few other. And that was one thing that he narrowed down a lot of grapes that they had there that weren't going to produce in. The, he, he had specific ideas of which areas were the best soil and temperature-wise for grapes. And um, he pulled out the last original Pinot Noir vineyard, which was across the street at the estate when it it was no longer producing. And at that time, Madame Delatour, he said, came out and said, Mr. Chalachev, are you growing grapes or leaves? 
I think I think he said that year the Pinot only came in at about a half a ton to an acre. So he pulled it out and he put those cuttings in across the valley trying to save them, but they didn't like the soil over there. But that was where his one really great Pinot Noir came out of that vineyard there. And do you remember Brick's numbers, what they used to pick at back then? I would say just offhand, probably their highest were around 22, 23, if they could get them in. Of course, it got hot. Why then there was a way to bring it down. But then it, when the young blood came into the wine industry, why then, and other people who liked high alcohol wine, why it went up. And he never was in favor of that. He, it was very hard for him to accept. Did you ever see redwood in the cellar, or was it oak? Oh, there were redwood tanks in there. Yeah, old, old redwood tanks. In fact, I'm not sure. I haven't been in the winery for a long time, but I think there's still some there. Yeah. And so then you were married in 68. Yep. And did you take a honeymoon? No. Too busy? No, no well, we were, we were married, and he had to work, and I eventually went to work in Napa for a while until he really retired in 73. And um, because he was then doing his own consulting for then until he went back to Beaulieu again. He took a break and he worked for a number of different wineries. Oh yeah, he, he retired in 73 and he went back to Beaulieu in 91. When he was he, about 91. Yeah. yeah, the first year he was there, he was 91. They had a birthday party for him. But in 67, he started consulting with Chateau St. Michel in Seattle. You used to travel he, up to Washington sometimes. Oh, quite often, very often. Would and, you go with them? Oh, I always went with him. I never went to the wineries to work. I mean, I always went with him. He decided that he was didn't want, uh, Hugh Blind never wanted family to go along, or they was mostly men travel. And he said he didn't want to travel alone, so I traveled with him and kept myself occupied with other things. But, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, we would drive up, and most of the time we'd drive up there, and then later on when they were building over into Yakima, into the valley, we'd, we'd fly over. Sometimes they'd send their plane into Napa, and we flew up on the plane and then over. So That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, he had clients here, here in California that used to pick him up and fly him to Hoffman Mountain Ranch down south. We used to do that quite often. Then he went. He started at King Estate when they started, and uh, their pilot used to come in and pick us up and take us up. In Oregon? In Oregon. Uh -huh. So kind of at the the beginning of the Washington and Oregon wine oh, scenes. Oh, yeah. When when we went into Washington, actually, this was called the American Wine Company, and they were basically sweet wines. And there was another original winery, small one, and then there was a group of professors at the college that had their own little winery. Leon Adams was up there, and... You know him, he was 
it, looking at all the different wine areas, and he told them that they should ask Andre to come. So he went up there in 1967. That was still when it was family-owned. It wasn't sold till 69. And um, he tasted some wines. He didn't think too much about them. And then he tasted one of the white wines that this professor's had. And he said, well, if you can make wine like that here, we'll do it. And of course, it was all, you know, in the wintertime, they would lay the vines down and cover them up. And cover them up. But um, he started, and Vic Allison was the head of this American wine company at that time, and he was really hesitant, but that's where it started. And then, of course, it was sold, and U.S. Tobacco, I think, bought it. But he consulted there up until his death. A lot of times when people were kind of pioneering regions, they would contact Andre as a person who could give perspective. Well, a, a, a lot of them did, yeah. He was very busy in those 18 years that he was, and he was very happy because in those years, he was able to say what he thought, what he felt, rather than the marketing saying, no, you have to do it this way or somebody else. He could tell them they didn't have to do it, but he could voice his own opinions. And he was very busy, actually, I had a list the other day of all the winemakers, <laughs> whole page. He, he went all over, and he did do one in Italy. In 1980, he met uh, Marquis Lodovico Antonori. For Ornelia. For Ornelia, and he was in there at the start of Ornelia when it wasn't even built yet. That was the only, basically, one that that he worked for out. I mean... He had lots of friends in France, and they always talked wine. I mean, where but it was nothing that he ever really worked, and, and I billed somebody for it. That was friendly. But he used there, to give away information freely. He never withheld anything. He shared it with everybody. And that was one thing that was hard for him when he came here, because when he came to the valley, there was this a great secrecy don't tell the next guy what you're doing. And that was a little hard for him to break through. And But he always was that way. I mean, people would call him at the house and ask for information that, and, or he'd come to that visit. And, and he was always willing to talk about the wine or their problems or what could be done. And Andre... When Andre started his consulting, of course, he started up at places like Nibam Coppola. He walked into that and he said, this is Beaulieu when I came. This is the way it was, the old big tanks up there. And he used to get up on, he wanted to get up on the tap of the tank and listen to it or smell it. It was his thing to get, climb the ladder and get on top of the tank and go from tank to tank hopping and Steve Baranzini, who was the winemaker there, said, Mrs. T, you, I can't tell you how many times I had to fish out Andre out from the tanks because he fell down. And then later, not too many years before he died, he was working at Con Creek. And OSHA, of course, had their rules about railings and stuff, and they had not got him up. And he was still climbing the tank and and um, they told him, no, he couldn't do that anymore. And th that really broke his heart <laughs> because that's the way he lived with it. 
What was his style when he addressed people? How did he talk with people? <laughs> well, he was very hard for them to understand with his um, language, but what he did with so many was that he he loved the young people. Of course, he had older ones, or but he, he loved the young people, and he understood them. Now, he was a good many years older than they were, but he could understand them. So he not only was in a lot of places, not every place, but in a lot of places, he was not only consulting with the winery, but he knew the winemaker and the winemaker's family and family talk. And they wanted to talk about raising geese or raising ducks. He could tell you about that too, or horses. So he just made them part of their life. He never felt that he was superior over them. And he gave and some guidance. He, he gave them guidance. guidance. And if he got through with his consulting and he came home and there was a problem, he'd sit down to some of these books that he had, or he'd get up and on the phone and call them. And he, he really enjoyed those 18 years because he just went from one young winemaker to the other and all of them coming up and a lot of them doing very well. It's a famous roster of names. Oh, yeah. Souverain and Stagsleep Wine Cellars. Oh, so. oh, yeah. Well, Stagsleep was a friendly consultant. And he really admired Warren for what he was doing and he saved time for him and went there. And But, oh, you know, yeah. They were always there in his back in his mind working along with things. And he was so, good at tasting wine. Oh, yeah. He had a good palate. He had an excellent palate. And he smoked. And nobody could understand that. But he said that he developed his palate because he was smoking at the time. And then there was a period uh, in the late 80s when he, he finally gave up camel cigarettes and took another cigarette um, but that didn't do it so he stopped smoking and at that time he figured his life was over this was he was gonna have to give up his he career wasn't gonna recognize him do, do it and it was in the summertime and he had a couple of cases of wine that came down from saint michelle for him to taste and it was hot our house doesn't have air conditioning and I watched him, and boy, he tasted it, and he sweated, but he made it through. And several years later, he told me that it was really strange that his senses came together from the tasting. Before, when he was smoking, they came like a pyramid. And then he said, after he quit smoking, it was like a fan. But he never, he, he never had any problem, but he thought he was going to have problem. But uh, he didn't, and, and well, the week before he went in the hospital, he had six wine tastings the day at the house, and I took him to the hospital on Sunday, and he died the following Tuesday. So He worked his whole life. His whole life, yeah. Was he ever, do you think, frustrated by anything in the wine realm? Oh, I think he was frustrated by a lot of things, and, and actually he was still, even to the end, frustrated that he'd always wanted to be a doctor. He didn't. He personally didn't feel that he did anything like he should have been, although he did a lot. And he never felt that he was should be taken as an example 
of what he did. What he always said was that there are many of the other emigres that came from the same situation, and they built their lives. So he didn't feel that he was an outstanding, never felt that way. Did he ever make it back to Russia? No, he he always talked about Mother Russia, and he wanted to, would have liked to gone back, but at that time he um, couldn't go back. And then Napa got to be sister city with city in Georgia, and they were going back, and he thought, well, he'd try it. And something about when the passport came just let out all the demons in this box he had closed, and he wouldn't go. And then later on, he got a, a thing from the University of California to go into the Crimean Peninsula, to the vineyards. And he applied, and they wouldn't give him a visa until he went to France. And when he went to France, he had to go to the, the council, the Russian council, and he had all the dossiers of the whole family on the table. He knew about all of them, and council said, well, your father was a criminal, or not a criminal, but he was wanted, but he's dead. But one brother stayed in Prague when they, they let the Russians come in and he stayed there because he had a, a wife who was dying. And so he was back in Russia. And there was no communication between this brother and the family that was over here. Although the family over here heard from friends about him. But anyway, the council said, well, we'd love to have you if you will renounce your citizenship. We'd love to have you. We need you. Or we have to ask your brother if it's all right for you to come back. And Andre said, well, how long would that take? And they said, oh, probably about three months. And he said, no. And he was that time going to Jerusalem. They, they were doing some kind of a study on irrigation, and he was going there. So he did that. And, and, and then later on, several years later, we did have one of the family from over there, a young man who just graduated from college, who was that part of the family was raised in Russia, and they were communist. But anyway, the young boy just graduated, so he came and spent three months with us. And Andre wouldn't speak Russian to him, only at night. I had to do the English to whatever. <laughs> but Boris stayed with us, and so Andre would talk to him about things that used to be, and... By the time he went back, Andre's remark was, even if I had the health, I would not go back. Because it just destroyed all of his love of the life as it was. He had memories that weren't the same oh, anymore. Yeah. What did he think about the new world? I mean, what did he think about California? Oh, well, when he said when he arrived in Rutherford, he said it was just like the Wild West. He, he said it was really rough. I guess Dimitri came, it was, he was eight, so he came from school in France, and he went to school in the French uniform, and kids beat him up. And, and, but he said in Rutherford there, there was an oaken bucket bar, and there was a restaurant there. And he said every Saturday night, they appeared there with their guns on their hips. You never knew who was going to have a shootout. But he said he really actually thought that he would not 
stay more than a year. Originally, it was just temporary. Yeah, he just, well, he just, it was just so absolutely not the culture that he was even familiar with. Why do you think he decided to stay? I suppose after the initial thing, he got into the wine and Mr. Delatour was there and it was family. And so I think that he gradually, he eventually moved out of the Yellow Castle and they had their own home. He used to raise chickens and things, ducks on his farm. But uh, of course, you know, by that time the war was over there. So his sister and her husband and their one son, well, the son was born during the war in France. The Second World War. Yeah. He didn't want to go back to Europe. He, he didn't want to go World back War. to Europe. Well, no. that makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I would. And so he was more or less, you, you might even say, sort of trapped because it's just like he said when he went into the winery, there were French barrels there. The wine was in French barrels, but then the war came, you couldn't get them. So that's when he developed his style of the Cabernet, which was in the oak barrels. American oak. American oak. He became famous for that at BV. Yeah, it was a style that at that time. And yet when he went back the last three years, he told Joel Aiken, who was a winemaker at that time, they went through the winery. He'd not been back in the winery. In fact, in all those years, whenever he drove, he always drove Silverado trails, so he didn't go. It was home to him. It was really home. And Separation family was hard. Was, yeah, it was very hard. And um, by that time, he told Joel, you know, why don't you start doing something different? Because at that time, they were, I think, not having as good success with their Cabernet as some of the other ones that were doing all French oak and stuff. And so then, then they started doing that. But Andre said things have changed. But he, he, said, he, I, he said, I've changed. I don't know why you don't. That's what Joel has often told me. So, so they did start to change. They were trying after he left to always make it just exactly as he'd done, you know, with the Georgia de la Tour. Yeah, and they didn't advance with the times. What would he tell you about it? At that time, not much. I mean, I, I knew very little about the wines. Actually, the 10 years that I was in the winery, I never even had any of the wine. The tasting room was just on the other side of my wall, but I was in the business part and... It was only after I married Andre that I got out and got into the wine tasting. We'd have a little wine at home, but we didn't. That wasn't anything we knew. Andre started a lab. Mm -hmm. And how did that go? He got permission from Madame de Penz to start this lab. And so he set it up in the old Masonic building in St. Helena there, up at the top. I think it was probably uh, to increase, help increase his income. And he felt that they needed it. They, he had the experience. And by that time, there were several of them that, that came there. The Louis Martini was there and, and um, the Mondavis. And so he started that. And then, uh, then he closed that. And 
when uh, Frank Bartholomew bought Buena Vista, Andre went in with him as a partner. He had a certain amount of money, and he took all that lab stuff over to Buena Vista. And after a while, then Frank wanted to be the owner, and so Andre stayed as a consultant there for all the years of Buena Vista. It was one of his favorite places, and he he was going there when he died. So, but he became a resource for a lot of people in the community. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Are there people you remember coming by the house? Oh yeah, yeah. There were there were always somebody coming by there to talk to Andre and ask him questions and. And we had a lot of people. We had quite a few, of course, from France come through there. And he gave some lectures over UC Davis for the graduating class a couple times after we were married, about three times. And it was really funny. He said, well, come over and visit me. Come anytime. Come anytime. And finally, um, one year... After his scholar, he, there's a scholarship in his name, and one of his scholarship guys wanted to know if he could bring a group over. So they came over for a lunch. Andre said, yes, come on a lunch. Oh, there were eight or nine of them. And uh, they walked up the house. They said, oh, this is where you live. I thought you lived in a mansion. But anyway, we had lunch, and pretty soon they were asking me if they could use the telephone. And, um, yeah, just fine. And, I, of course, I was in the kitchen, and I found out that they were going to come and see him and then lunch and go. They never left. They were there the whole afternoon. I mean, and he, I never had to worry because Andre had them all there. They talked, and I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> but this this is the thing. They they just found that he he was not the king that they were supposing. He was a very able to talk to them on their terms and understand their problems. And I think that's because of the, the life he had. It wasn't always easy. Oh, no. No. He no. built some empathy. Yeah. Yeah, he did. He, he, he just, well, you know, they were fairly well up in the Russian culture. They weren't royalty, but they had very comfortable life, and then you pack everything and leave the town and leave everything you've had for centuries behind and go into war and all of that. It's, it's, it wasn't an easy life, but uh, I, I think that made him understand life a lot more than a lot of us. He seemed to have a certain style about him, the way he dressed, <laughs> the way he smoked. <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> he, he he smoked. You know, I hated that smoking because I had quite a few curtains that were burnt when he had his cigarette up here like this. Um, at first, when we were first married, and we started like say, going to to Saint Michel, he was always a jacket, tie, and thing. And me, I'm I'm American, so didn't travel that way. So. I got him out of that, and eventually he wore um, sweaters a lot. He loved those Pringle cashmere sweaters, and that's what he wore. And, uh, but, I mean, it was travel then was everybody was dressed up when they traveled. It was a special event to travel. Yeah, sure it was. And he, he wore the same type of clothes, yeah, always. Yeah. 
Yeah. Was he a literary man? Yeah. Yeah, he liked to read books. Like, he was very well educated. I mean, the family had a box in the opera. I mean, he was brought up with a lot of things that a poor California girl didn't even know about. <laughs> but he didn't make you feel bad about that, I imagine. No, oh. no, no, no. You were a team. And he always, he kind of felt... Several times he, he said he he got so busy with his wine that he'd lost some of his culture. His we 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 went we went to Paris, we went to saw Eugene Onegin and the opera there in Paris. I bet he liked time. that a lot. Oh he did like that. And uh at the at the opera house. At in the Paris. opera house That's in Paris. Nice. Oh yeah, it was it was nice. It was um Rostopovich was leading it, and his wife was the leading opera. It was quite an experience for me. Of course, it was all in Russian, but he felt that in doing this, the wine had consumed so much of his time, and we, we went to other things, but not taking in those cultural things. He kind of regretted that. But Seems like he was very open with the wine, and that's probably why it started to take more and more time. Yeah. Open to yeah, talking yeah, to people yeah, about it. Yeah, and oh yes, he was always open with them. For a while, you know, he he never charged anybody, and people would come and have their consultation at the house. And one year, my son sent us a monkey that clapped like this at Christmas time, and and they saw that. So for several years, I had around my coffee table next to the I had all kinds of moving animals. They'd go and they and then they'd send him a animal of some kind, a cow that walked or something. So we had a whole collection of those. Kind of a tribute. They knew yeah, he liked that. Yeah, they just sent him as a gift. When he started consulting, he only charged thirty five dollars an hour, and he, if he went for a half an hour, that's all they got charged for. And later on, must admit he got a lot more an hour, but it was the company where he worked or the people that he worked that raised it. He never himself raised it. And some of the winemakers here in the valley, who we knew very well, and they started a winery and um, we just kind of wondered why they never asked Andre. They One of them hired a, a young boy out of UC Davis as a consultant which is, he's not really been tried in the, and so one time I asked the man about it, I said, why? We always wondered why. And he said, well, I couldn't afford Andre. And so I said, well, how much did you pay your consultant? And then I told him how much Andre charged, and he was a little amazed. But that was another thing that the aura got there, that he's so great you can't afford to have him, and he never did. He was oftentimes wouldn't charge him anything. And he enjoyed to do vineyard work as much as wine. He loved the vineyards. He loved the vineyard. I I always said I couldn't take him anywhere for a vacation unless there were vineyards, wine, or fishing. But I always thought his first love was the vineyard and then the wine. He really he loved to plant. He loved to grow things. When we were married and we'd had this house here in Napa. He had the whole 
the whole garden, everything you work, you plant. There were flowers, and he grew potatoes in a barrel, and and uh, he just loved that. That was his thing. Had his family had a garden in Russia? There was a big estate south of Russia. I, I think, three hundred acre estate down there, and they raised borzoi dogs for hunting and Orlov horses. And um, in fact, Teddy Roosevelt visited there in, what did he tell me, 1913 or 14, and he bought one of their borzois to bring back here for breeding. So there is a line of the borzoi dogs named Chelischev. And the first thing when the peasants took over the place, first thing they did was hang all the horses. They had a beautiful line of Orlov horses. And... Uh, but, yeah, he, he, he grew, and they, of course, in those days, then they grew all their stuff there, so he grew up with that. Did he enjoy to drink Cabernet on his own time, and what did he usually drink? <laughs> well, actually, basically, when we were at home, he drank tea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was with wine all day. He was tasting wine in some way or another, and so... Well, we had wine and company. Uh, he liked Cabernet, but uh, he had a, a burgundy palate. Both he and I liked the Pinot Noir. And that's what he strived so hard for, to make a good. And, and his 46 and 47 Pinot Noir that he made at Beaulieu from that little vineyard was called Petit Norian. They brought the cuttings over. The... 46, he was fine. 47, Dr. Amarine wanted him to do some different kind of fining from what Andre was doing. And so he did half Dr. Amarine's way and half his way. He liked his and Dr. Amarine liked the other, but that was the last vineyard. Now, I've had a chance to taste the 46 several times, and it was a beautiful wine, even in, in the 80s. Believe it or not, um, there was a doctor who worked at Davis, and when Pinot Noir was, he stocked up on it and had a supply, and Daryl Cordy from Sacramento got me some, and so we had some at the house a couple of times on a special occasion. And it was a really beautiful wine even then. Dorothy uh, Telechev yes. had an office on the other side of the tasting room, and she met Andre Telechev there. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Dorothy Telechev is the widow of Andre Telechev. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. 
That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This interview was made possible with the assistance of Napa Valley Vintners, a nonprofit trade association committed to promoting and protecting the Napa Valley. It was always exciting, that is for sure. And he loved to fish.